your seat. Just another reminder on the security that we are we're, we're implementing that, and probably right about now the front door is being locked. The back door will be also locked, but there will be somebody at the back door to let anyone in that is arriving late for whatever reason. We know that we never have traffic issues here in Houston, and that never slows anybody down, and you know we never uh, get busy or have something. I was online. 20 minutes ago, I was on the phone to Apple Care at home. So, you have to move fast sometimes. Anyhow, just a reminder, uh, a week, I mean, this weekend is Bert Seville's memorial celebration. Everyone is invited to be out at the graveside, which is at 10 o'clock at Memorial Oaks. That's out here on I-10 between uh, Derry Ashford and Eldridge. And then... Uh, 11.30 will be the memorial service here at West Houston Bible Church followed by a uh, followed by a meal. Next Tuesday night there will not be Bible class because we will have the equipment, much of the equipment up at Dallas for the pre-trib rapture study group. That will be, there'll be recordings and audio eventually from from all of that. And appreciate prayers for both Jeremy Thomas and myself. We're sort of doing a two-parter together. He's doing the first 30 verses of Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, and then I'm doing the rest of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25 in an hour. So, and critiquing everybody under the sun. So, we won't get all that done, rest assured. Okay, uh, the Lord's Table is... Uh, a week from Sunday on the 10th, that is also the day that we're going to have our annual Thanksgiving and Christmas meal, and then we will have Lord's Table again two weeks later on Christmas Eve Sunday that morning at the morning service. I don't think there's any other announcements. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer as usual to give everyone the opportunity to uh, refocus their thinking, to confess sin if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the opportunity to come together this evening to worship you, to freely teach the word. Father, we're thankful for the freedom that we have in this nation, that we can teach the word, proclaim the word, and that we can not be fearful from any government interference in terms of our spiritual life and uh, the application of your word. Father, there are many who wish to take that away from us. The enemies of Christ and the cross increase uh, weekly. And Father, we pray that you would Continue to provide men and women who lead us in government, from the local government to the highest level of government, to continue to preserve those freedoms for us. Father, we pray for us that we might have the courage of our convictions to witness, to seize opportunities, to tell others about the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we might be faithful witnesses both in terms of our life and in terms of our lips. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles. Initially, let's start at Ezekiel 28. We won't get there for a few minutes, but we will get there. And that is primarily the focal point of our study. We are in 1 Peter, but we're going to be in this sub-series of the angelic conflict for just a few weeks. We've had two lessons already, and uh, tonight we're going to get into... Uh, the second part of what we started last time, which dealt with the fall of Satan and demons. Last time we talked about angels and their qualities and characteristics, and tonight we're going to get into the fall of Satan a little bit more. 
The reason we're doing this in 1 Peter 3, 18 and 19 is because we're told that after the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, went and preached to spirits in prison. And to whom does this refer? This is related to the angels who sinned in Second Peter 2, 4. We'll come back and look at this in more detail, maybe tonight, maybe next week. Angels who sinned, and that too in Second Peter 2, 5, is related to the time of Noah. You also have a reference in Jude 6 and 7 to a group of angels who did not keep their proper domain, and that's related to a sexual sin that is at least before Sodom and Gomorrah. So it doesn't say Noah here, but it tells us by the contrast that it goes back to something very ancient. And we believe that all of this has to do with the event that is recorded in Genesis chapter 6. So to understand that, we have to understand a lot about angels. So we had talked last time about the creation of angels and that angels... This does not look like I had. Let me make sure I have the right slideshow up here. I don't. That didn't look right. Okay. What happened? It's been one of those days. Maybe this is. This isn't it, but I can get there very quickly. I had this whole thing worked out today. What happened? Okay, um, none of this is where I had it. Okay, we're going to start on this slide. That's where I was. One of those days. It's the angelic conflict. What you always expect something to happen, right? Okay. Um, Classification of angels, that's where I wanted to start. And on this slide, I just wanted to take us back and talk about a cherub because in Ezekiel 28, when we talk about the fall of Satan, we discover that he was a cherub. So I wanted to just read through these verses because this is a section of the Bible that a lot of people just don't ever read. They start into some of the things in Ezekiel, and it just seems rather bizarre and odd, unlike anything that they've ever experienced, and they don't know quite what to do with it, so they just skip over it and go someplace that they think is a little, little easier. We have a description of cherubs. The Hebrew uses I-M for a plural. In English, we add an S to form a plural, so that would be cherubs, but it's a Hebrew word, so the plural is cherubim. They're not little angels like you see in some medieval uh, artwork with wings. A cherub is something quite different. So we see that uh, the depiction of them in Ezekiel 1, 5 to 24, and also in Ezekiel 10, 1 to 15. Now, they're not identified as cherubs in Ezekiel 1, but they are this description's the same, and they are identified as that in Ezekiel 10. So in verse 5 we read, also from within, that is, at the beginning there's this picture of the, in verse 4, this whirlwind was coming out of the north, a great cloud with raging fire engulfing itself. Brightness was all around and radiating out of its mist like the color of amber out of the mist of the fire. So it's like a tornado that's coming, and within it is this fire and it's an extremely bright light. And as it approaches, Ezekiel looks in and he says that in there, there were these, he could distinguish four living creatures. This was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. So they appeared human-like. Now, it's interesting is that if the cherubs were created before man, and they were, because we looked last time at Job 38, 4 through 7, where all of the angels sang for joy. They were united together when God laid the foundations of the earth. So that's somewhere around Genesis 1, 1. We'll talk about that later. God doesn't create human beings until Genesis, what? Until the sixth day. So you have angels who have the appearance of a man prior to the creation of men, and you also have these other appearances of animal parts 
the face of an ox, an eagle, wings, part of what a cherub looked like. So God has this, this, this idea of these shapes and forms that were originally put together in different ways among the angels. And then, because God knows a good thing when he sees it, he doesn't go reinvent the wheel every time he turns around. He uses those same forms and shapes when he creates uh, all of the animals that make up the earth in Genesis chapter 1. So, they had the likeness of a man, verse 6. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Now, seraphs, we see, will have six wings. Their legs are straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze. The hands of a man were under their wings on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. And then it goes on to describe them in verse 10, as for the likeness of their faces, each had the face of a man, each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side, each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and each of the four had the face of an eagle. The, thus were their faces, their wings stretched upward, two wings of each touched one another, and two covered their bodies. So that, it's all, I, I have no idea what the answer is, but that is, has always impressed me about they had these shapes and forms before God ever created them within the framework of the six days of creation in, in Genesis. Now, if we go over to Ezekiel chapter 10, we'll spend a lot of time in Ezekiel tonight. Ezekiel chapter 10, which describes the departure of the glory of God, the Shekinah, from, from the temple. And again, in this vision, this is what Ezekiel sees. He says, I looked, and there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone having the appearance and likeness of a throne. So he's looking at the throne of God with this brilliant color of sapphire, and he goes on to say, and he, that is God, spoke to the man clothed with linen, which is an angel, said, Go in among the wheels, under the cherub, fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. That's really interesting because what Ezekiel is able to do, like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, he's at the physical temple in Jerusalem, but he sees the intersection between the dimension of the heavens and the earth that we see and this heavenly dimension. And so that veil is lifted so that he can see both the material universe where he is as well as how the heavenly uh, universe uh, intersects with it. He says, Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and paused over the... Th that would be a reference to the cherub's the cherub in the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant. He paused over the threshold of the temple, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. That brightness of the Lord's glory is often what we think of when we think of the Shekinah glory. But the word Shekinah comes from the Hebrew word Shekhan, which means to dwell. So it's a dwelling glory. Shekinah doesn't mean glory. It doesn't even define a kind of glory. It's just the dwelling of God. And um, then we, he says, And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. What are the cherubim always associated with? They're associated with the presence of God. They are very close to God. And they are, as it were, his, his closest bodyguard or attendant. Okay? Then we read um, verse 6, Then it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, take, take first from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. Then he went in and stood on the side of the wheels, and the cherub stretched out his hands from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim. And fire always, when it's associated with God, always speaks of purification and, and holiness. 
And so he goes on and lets you skip down to their appearance in verse 10. It says, as for their appearance, all four looked alike, as it were, a wheel in the middle. Uh, When they went, they went toward toward, uh, of the the four directions. They did not turn aside when they went, but followed in the direction the head was facing. And their whole body, with their... Uh, with their back of their hands, their wings, and the wheels, and the four, and what the four had were full of eyes all around. As for the wheels, they were uh, called in my hearing. Each of the four faces, the first was like a, the face of a cherub here, and then the face of a man, the face of a lion, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. So this is a picture of these living creatures. Now, S- Lucifer pre-fall is a cherub so he has a is a picture of a phenomenal creature that speaks of tremendous power and close association with god so i just wanted to go back and look at those verses before we went forward to talk about uh, the origin of satan and the demons and we talked about this some last time that satan did not uh, God did not create evil. He's not the one who originated evil. That he created angels with free will, with volition. And as he creates them with volition, he gives them the freedom to either obey God or disobey God, to be righteous. They're created initially as righteous. It's an untested righteousness, just as man will later be created with an untested righteousness. They're, they're perfect, they're moral, and we don't know how long they existed before uh, Satan's fall, but during that time, everything in the universe is, is righteous. God, who is uh, righteous, cannot look on anything that is unrighteous, so he, we know he can't create anything that is unrighteous, and all things were created by him, as stated in John 3 and also Colossians 1.16. It says, For all things in heaven and on earth were created by him, all things, whether visible or invisible. So that takes in the material universe that we see, as well as the in- invisible universe, which is the realm of the angels. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, and we know when we compare that with other passages of Scripture that those are terms of the hierarchies of authorities within the angels. So they're organized, there's uh, command, there's authority, there are those who have lesser roles, those who have greater roles. All of that is indicated by these terms. Now, all of the angels, therefore, created perfect, holy, and righteous. But in the New Testament, we come along and learn that there's a group of angels that rebelled against God. Now, they're not identified, really, that way in the Old Testament. We hear spirits. We hear of uh, uh, the the sons of God, the Nephilim, are are the result of that union in Genesis chapter 6, I think. But they are uh, not, re- we're not really given that much information until you get into the New Testament. And when you talk to some, if you talk to somebody that's Jewish, they don't believe that Satan is evil. They, Shatan just means the, the accuser. So they think of him more as a, as a prosecuting attorney or defense attorney, something like that, who's opposed to God but they don't think of him as evil. So you've got to work through some things there if you're talking to somebody that's that's Jewish. They don't believe that Satan is a fallen angel. That's uh, They don't identify Shatan, who's, or Satan that's mentioned in Job, with uh, the devil. So we have, uh, that's where Satan is mentioned. Now, the next thing that we talk about then is where did evil come from how did evil begin and that's as we've covered many times and as i've taught you many times in the past the problem with that is that you get people who want to pin you they think they've got you as a and they got to have a gotcha question well how do you as a christian 
believe in a loving God when you have all these horrible things that go on. There's these terribly evil people. There's so much violence. There's the evil of ISIS and the evil of terrorists who torture people and murder people and all of these things. How can you believe that God is a good God? It just, everything just looks out of control. And there was a well-known book that was written by a rabbi back in the, in the 80s called How, uh, you know, uh, had to do with how can a good God allow these things to happen? And his answer is, well, God just really can't control evil. And that's what happens when you don't have a large view of God as is presented in the Bible. And so the critics raise this question of the problem of evil and ask this, how can a good God let evil occur? And you have this happen in a small scale when you have people who suffer loss, like during Hurricane Harvey, or maybe death of a loved one, death of a friend, especially if they're young and someone uh, is young and near, close to them, and they, they don't understand. How can God let this happen? They make it very, very personal. And so it's important to step back, and the foundational answer is because God allows his creatures, his sentient, that is, his intelligent creatures, free will. And to be free, you have to be free to fail. You have to be free to make really bad decisions and then see the consequences of those decisions. And so if God limits how bad the consequences are or how bad the decisions are that you make, then he, that, that works on the bottom, but it also has to limit the top. If God starts limiting freedom, then you really don't have freedom. And so when God allowed his creatures the freedom to choose to obey him or disobey him, that creates a scenario for the potential of evil. And evil has its root in rebellion against God, the creature thinking that he has the ability, the omniscience and the omnipotence to be able to run the universe. And this is what we see, we'll see is Satan's sin. So when evil comes in, it is devastating. We have such a shallow view of evil. Even if you think you have a profound, complex view of evil, we have a shallow view of evil. Very few of us have ever been face-to-face with something that is qualitatively evil. I think there are some human beings and some circumstances that people can get in that are that way. But that even that is limited because evil is not always that which is what we think of as bad. Uh, torture and violence, famine, pain, suffering, that is one type of evil. But then you have another kind of evil that masquerades as morality, that masquerades as goodness. If the Bible is true... And the Bible says that if you don't believe in Jesus, then you're going to spend eternity being punished in the lake of fire. Then if somebody says that's not true, then isn't that the worst form of evil to tell people that you can actually have eternal life and avoid the lake of fire by just being good? Isn't that a horrible form of evil? So religion... And all the trappings of good works and emphasis on human morality and human good can be an insidious form of evil that is much worse in its consequences than someone like an ISIS terrorist or uh, the Holocaust or the Nazis or any of these other things that we want to label as the epitome of evil. So evil is not always something horrific. Sometimes it's good. And that's why Satan, according to 1 Corinthians 12, masquerades as an angel of light and his ministers as ministers of righteousness. It's a false morality, a false uh, a false goodness. So when we look at this question of, of evil, we when we're talking to an unbeliever, we need to Instead of just rushing to answer it, we need to say, well, 
Well, that's an interesting problem. Maybe you can help me understand how you explain it. How do you, as a non-Christian, how do you explain the origin and presence of evil? When does it begin? And think in terms of those those kinds of answers. When in, in, in a pagan system, when does evil begin? Well, for them, evil really is is normal because they don't really have a beginning. It, it, if it's if it never has a beginning, if it just goes on and on for eternity, there's always been quote good and evil. They're just two sides of the same coin, which is where you get the the yin yang symbol. They're just two sides of the same coin, but if there's no beginning, then there's then there's, it's normal. You can't say that's just that's abnormal. The Christian, on the other hand, says that evil has a beginning. This is not the slide I want. This is the slide I want. Evil has a beginning. It begins with the fall of Satan. So there's an eternity past that precedes the fall of Satan that is perfect, and there's no evil. Once Satan sins, you have the beginning of evil, and it goes throughout human history until human history is brought to a conclusion. All volition is brought to a final ending at the great white throne judgment. And at the great white throne judgment, all who have rejected God and his provision of, of a gracious salvation are punished eternally. We'll get into all the details of that later. They're punished eternally, and Satan and all of those who fo- followed him, all the angels that followed him, are also judged and sent to the lake of fire. And so evil at that point is going to end it is punished and restricted to the location of the lake of fire. So evil is something that is a blip on the on the timeline of eternity. It's not eternal. It's not normal. It is something that comes into existence because of free will. And so because of man's wrong use of free will and, and the angel's wrong use of free will... What we have is the uh, God having to make an object lesson. And so evil comes into existence. Human history is part of demonstrating all of these facets of evil. And then you have its ending in the lake of fire. What's interesting, I think, is that Job, the more I think about this, the more it hits me, that Job was the very first book that is written in the in the Old Testament. And it is explaining why there is evil in human experience. And it goes beyond all of the various superficial explanations that are uh, represented by Job's three friends. They come up with their explanations, which aren't any different from most people's. But at the end, God is saying to Job, can you understand all of these things that I've done? Absolutely not. You, your mind can't wrap around them. So because of that, you can't, uh, if I told you why these evil things happen in your life, you wouldn't be able to understand it. You have to trust me. So this chart here shows the origin and the limitations of evil. And in all other religious systems, philosophical systems, pagan systems, there's no answer to that question as why does evil exist. It ends up being, if it ends up being normal, because it's always been there, then when you, when you have that as your, as your situation, then you can't really talk about good or evil. They become rather arbitrary terms that are just uh, attached to that which is convenient or that which is inconvenient or that which you like or that which you don't like, but it doesn't talk about something qualitative. And frankly, I think that one of the things that made President George W. Bush so disliked by the liberals, the left, the the atheist, secular left, 
that rejected God and rejected any sort of absolutes of morality is that after 9-11, he consistently labeled the terrorists as evildoers as if evil was an objective, quantifiable reality. And that didn't fit their their whole uh, truth suppression uh, fantasy of, of, of life. And so he was challenging them by the use of that term at the very core presupposition of their explanation of life and existence. And they hated him for it because ultimately everything boils down to some sort of spiritual beliefs and spiritual realities. So... We're going to look at, I started this a little bit last time in Ezekiel chapter 28, and I want to go through an explanation of this. It's interesting, that was two weeks ago, and right after that, I had two or three men at the men's prayer breakfast all comment to me that, wow, that was a great study. We've never drilled down on the angels and the angelic conflict quite this much. And then there were two or three other questions that came up uh, related to the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. And on top of that, I got received two or three questions in the last few weeks that have dealt with this issue of whether or not the fall of Satan is in uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And that's what you'll find. I pointed this out last time, that what you have is... is in the um, in many of your study Bibles, you will have notes there, especially on Isaiah 14, that this really didn't refer to the fall of Satan. That was a misinterpretation. And about half the time, you'll run into the same comment on Ezekiel 28. More people will accept Ezekiel 28 as the fall of Satan than they will Isaiah 14. And so I wanted to just run over some things as an introduction to understand both of these passages. First of all, what happens in this attack from the critics on Isaiah and Ezekiel talking about Satan is that they go to some alleged Canaanite or Phoenician myth are some idealized legend that um, ends up saying that um, that this is not Satan. It comes from this kind of myth or background. And the problem is, is that this kind of a view is completely incompatible with divine inspiration, with our view of inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. It's completely incompatible with a literal grammatical historical interpretation. And beyond that, they really, when you ask them the question, well, what myth? Where did this come from? Well, they don't have an answer. They can't find a myth. They just think it has mythological language so it must come from something and they try to make certain parts of it fit uh, this sort of a background. A second thing that we have to note when we look at these passages is that what is said in both Isaiah 14, 12 through 14 and in Ezekiel chapter 28 verses 11 down through uh, 19 can't be said of a human being. It can't be said of a creature at all. So they, these these individuals in these passages are very different from regular human beings. Uh, third point is Isaiah says, "How oh how you have fallen from heaven." That's how it describes this person. How you have fallen from heaven. No Babylonian or Assyrian ruler ever fell from heaven. And see, the context of Isaiah 14 is talking about Babylon. And so that is thought thought to be some kind of mythological language or hyperbole that's applied to the king. But there's nothing historical that would fit that. And so that is talking about a creature that has uh, lived in and then been ejected from heaven. A fourth thing to notice, and I pointed this out last time, is if you look, I assume you're still in Ezekiel 28, if you look at Ezekiel 28, the second verse, which I have right here on this slide, is addressed to the prince of Tyre. 
But when you get down to verse 12, it shifts the terminology to the king of Tyre. So there are two different personages that are mentioned here. The prince is viewed as a man. The term man is used in verse 2, and um, uh, and the term man is used in, in verse 9. Verse 2 says, yet you are a man and not a god. So the prince of Tyre is identified as a man, and he may be a man that aspires to deity, but he is not identified the same way the king of Tyre is mentioned. If you look at the king of Tyre, the king of Tyre is described uh, in remarkable ways. He, in verse uh, 14, he's called the anointed cherub. In verse uh, 16, again, he is the covering cherub. So the prince of Tyre is called a man. The king of Tyre is called a cherub. So this is quite, quite different. Now, at this, in the ancient world at this time, the god of Tyre was a deity that went by the name of Malkart. And if you um, understand the, the uh, con- uh, consonants that are there, uh, Melek, you can hear the M, the L, and the K. That's your consonants. Melek is the Hebrew word, the Canaanite Phoenician word for king. Melkart, you hear the M-L-K, and then there's an R-T at the end. That is a reference to the God who is the king of the city. And that might be the background for understanding this king. This king is was one of their idols. Melkart was one of their idols or the false deities that they worship. Now, the Old Testament makes it clear that these idolatrous gods are not just figments of human imagination. The gods and goddesses that you read about in, um, in, in Greek mythology or Roman mythology or Egyptian mythology or Norse mythology, these are uh, deities that are manifestations of demons, according to the Scripture. So in Deuteronomy 32.17, in talking about these pagan cultures in Canaan, Moses said they sacrifice to demons, not God. So they might create a altar and call it God's altar, but they were in reality sacrificing to an idol that was uh, the front, the veneer for a demon. They, he says they sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Then in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul echoes that same thought. He says, rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So when you see these idols, whether it's some Eastern idol of Buddha or something else, or you see Egyptian idols, all of those, they're representing, in reality, a demon. And those religions are all inspired by demons. Everything other than biblical religion is inspired by Satan and is inspired by uh, demons. And when you don't have a biblical worldview that understands that, then you can be taken in in our system where we want to have freedom of religion and treat people's religious uh, beliefs uh, with respect then you can be taken in, as most people in this country are, by, by Islam. Islam worships Allah, and you'll hear a lot of people say, well, Allah and Elohim, that's the same term. We worship the same God, but we don't. Uh, just a simple example is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob loves the Jews and loves the Jewish people, but the God, Allah, of Islam hates the Jews and hates the Christians. They can't be the same God. It's just not rational. It's just not logical. And I believe that the Allah of Islam is a manifestation of Satan. 
And I think it is the most satanic religion that has ever been developed in human history. This is one reason why, if you don't understand that, you think that sounds harsh, then you need to listen to the Chafer Pastors Conference this coming March, March 12th through 14th. And our keynote speaker this year is going to be uh, Sharam Hadian. Uh, he spoke, uh, did a conference a couple of years ago for a couple of days at Sugarland Bible Church. He's quite informed. He grew up as a Muslim. When he was in college, he converted to Christianity. His family had immigrated here from Iran. And later on, as a Christian, he uh, was involved in a number of things. He got involved politically. He got involved, ran for governor of Washington State at one point, had a talk show at one point, and is a pastor, and he speaks all over the country about Islam. And only someone who truly understands from the inside out Islam can speak with that kind of authority. And there's an, any number of people around who do that. But we live in a culture that wants to pull the covers over their heads and not realize that Islam is a satanic religion that seeks to destroy the freedom of the West, which is the a center of Christianity. That's why, in their view, it's not just biblical Christians, it's anything that manifests Christ. And so, of course, for them, uh, the Vatican and Catholic churches, all of these things uh, are uh, the are the enemy, and you go to Europe, and what you find in many places now, in England, in France, in Italy, is churches that no longer function as churches, and they've been taken over, that real estate in those buildings have been taken over by Muslims and converted into mosques. One of the most uh, celebrated mosques in the world in Istanbul is the uh, Hagia Sophia, which was originally a Christian church. It was the center, it was the big megachurch in uh, Constantinople during the Byzantine Empire. But when Constantinople was overrun in 1453 by the Muslims, they converted it into a mosque. This is what they do. They're trying to show their superiority over Christianity. It is a worldwide conflict, and you can act like you don't care, and you don't want to be involved in it all day long, but all that means is you're going to become a, a, a casualty in this in this war. So it is demonic at its core. Every false religion is demonic at its core because it is attacking the truth of biblical Christianity. So these uh, ancient religions were all based on something uh, satanic. Now, a fifth thing that we ought to observe as we look at the uh, fall of Satan narratives in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 is they identify Satan's sin, his original sin, as pride and arrogance. In the New Testament, Paul says in reference to the devil, he says, uh, he's talking about qualifications for leaders. He says they should not be a novice or a young believer, lest being puffed up with pride or becoming arrogant, he fall in, falls into the same condemnation as the devil. Well, how would Paul know that Satan's sin was arrogance if Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 weren't talking about the fall of Satan? Where would you learn? that Satan's original sin was arrogance if you weren't if you didn't have Isaiah 14 or Ezekiel 28 you wouldn't know anything about the origin of Satan if you didn't have those two passages so that's another indication that these are passages that relate to the fall of Satan the sixth thing is that when you look at the descriptions especially in Ezekiel 28 but also to some degree in, in Isaiah 14 that that these are grand, these are grandiose descriptions of these kings, but they are much greater than you you could apply to a human king. Not even hyperbole rises to this level. And so you can't say it's just a figure of speech or metaphor. And so uh, I was challenged one time by somebody who 
I, a lot of people had respect for because he had a lot of money and he had a high IQ. And he just came along and said, you know, this is all metaphor. This was a guy who'd supposedly knew doctrine and been, been around a lot of doctrine. I said, well, you have to be able to demonstrate figures of speech contextually. You can't just, you know, arbitrarily assert that it's metaphor. It doesn't look that way, it, not if you're really familiar with, with language. But that is not typical. I mean, that is typical for people who somehow want to, and this guy was so busy trying to witness to Jews that he said, well, they don't think Satan in the Old Testament is, is the devil, so why should we? Well, wait a minute. Just because they don't think Satan is the, the devil doesn't mean they're right. Uh, there's a lot of things that Jews believe about the Old Testament that aren't right. Uh, and they, they became known as Pharisees, and the Pharisees were the ones who basically rewrote the books for, the, for rabbinical theology, which is the foundation for modern, modern Judaism. Now, a seventh point is that no human king would be described in the way this creature is described in Ezekiel 28.15. There it says, you were perfect. Circle that word in your Bible. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. There's two interesting words there. There's the word for created, which is bara. Now, the word bara is is a God word. Only God's creation and creative ability is so unique that he, that God's creative activity has its own verb. No other creature, no creature, no other being is said in the Bible to bara. Only God baras. Only God does this kind of creating. So when the text says you are perfect in your ways from the day you were barad, we know God created him. This isn't a human being that is created uh, through sexual intercourse. This isn't a, an angel or something else that is created in some other, uh, fa- some mythological God that's created in some, some other fashion. It is a being that is created uniquely by the God of the Bible. Secondly, it says, you were perfect in your ways. Now, the word that is translated perfect here is the word uh, tamim. It's a word we've run into several times recently. On Tuesday night, we've been studying in the, uh, uh, in the Psalms, in Psalm 18, and David says, I was, I, was, I was perfect. It's translated that way, or blameless. Well, you have... The use of the word clearly indicates when it's applied to a human being that it's somebody who's doing a pretty good job. They're fairly righteous or they're fairly moral. They, 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 they're doing things uh, fairly right. But when the word tamim is applied to God, it loses any kind of connotation related to sin. It indicates absolute perfection absolute blamelessness. Man cannot be absolutely blameless. So no human king could ever be said to be blameless from the day that you were uh, created, not from the day that you were given birth to. So this can't refer to a human, human king. An eighth thing to recognize is that the guardian, uh, which is part of what I just said, is that this guardian cherub was created directly uh, directly by God. I sort of combined those two points. Ninth point, the assertion that the king in Ezekiel was in the garden of God cannot be reconciled with any temporal human figure. He is in the holy mountain of God in Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen. How can you relate that to any any human being? In Ezekiel twenty-eight sixteen. God says, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. How does that relate at all? If you go to um, miss the mention of the of the garden of God, but he is in the garden of God initially where these uh, fiery stones are, uh, are are located. And uh, in Eden, 
back in verse 12, right, uh, 13 rather. You were in Eden, the garden of God. I didn't get that in my on a slide. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. So that is not part of the, um, that would not apply to any, any human being. So when we look at these verses in Ezekiel, there we have 13. Ezekiel 11 and 12 starts off talking about the king of Tyre. And we have to understand who this king of Tyre uh, is actually about. If we look at the beginning, going back to verses 1 and 2, it addresses the prince of Tyre. The Hebrew word is nagid. It can refer to a prince. It can refer to a leader, uh, someone in authority. But it is very different from the term melech that is used in verse 12 for the king of Tyre. And so uh, this, at this particular time in history, when, when Ezekiel wrote, the ruler of Tyre's name was Ethbaal, Ethbaal III, who reigned from 590 B.C. to 572. And the use of Nagid is restricted to this one time in Ezekiel. No ruler elsewhere in Ezekiel is referred to by this word. So this singles him out. And it's notable that there's this contrast between the Nagid, the prince of the first 10 verses, and the Melech, the king of verse 11 and and following. So this indicates there's some stark contrast between these two individuals. Furthermore, we have to understand that in the scripture, God often addresses Satan through the creature that he is using. And when he is, uh, for example, when Satan uses the serpent in the Garden of Eden, God curses the serpent. But he's, he's also, that curse is going to Satan, who is the power behind the serpent. When Jesus uh, foretold his crucifixion at one point in Matthew sixteen twenty three. Peter says, oh, no, no, Lord, you're not going to be crucified. That's not going to happen. And Jesus turns around and looks right at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Because at that point, Peter is articulating you know, Satan's agenda. And so Jesus is addressing Satan through Peter. And then uh, the prince here uh, is is uh, described as a man and not a god, and so he's the one who's being addressed to the power behind him, and the power behind him is the Melech, or as we noted earlier, Melkart, the deity, the king of uh, the king of Tyre. So this change from prince of Tyre to king of Tyre is is very important. But the king, the ruler of Tyre at this point, could never be spoken of as someone who was an anointed cherub. Uh, If it's talking about the Garden of Eden as described in Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3, uh, none of this description would apply to Adam. So this has to apply to some creature that is not a human king and can't even be applied to Adam. Adam was not an anointed cherub nor did he have access to the mountain of God. He was in a garden that was planted east of Eden, technically, uh, in the garden uh, of Eden. When he's cast out from the garden, uh, he's cast from the garden, not from a mountain. So it doesn't fit. This can't be human, and it can't be the human king of Tyre. So the lamentation is taken up because this is foreshadowing the future destruction of the power behind the, the the human king. It's addressed to the king of Tyre. Thus says the Lord, you were the seal of perfection. And this is an interesting idiom in the Hebrew, and we can just translate it idiomatically. It says, you're the ultimate standard of my creation. You're the highest of my creation. You are the best of all the angels. You had more intelligence. You had more power. You had more beauty. You were the the seal of perfection. You were the next phrase, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. So in terms of uh, physical manifestation, just glorious beyond anything that could be imagined. 
everything in absolute perfection according to an objective standard and full of wisdom and skill at everything, the most intelligent creature that God ever created. And so when people go up against Satan, they're going up against somebody who can think, outthink human beings beyond anything that we can imagine. Not only he's not omniscient, but he is extremely bright, brighter than anyone else. Plus, he's got over 6,000 years of observing human behavior and human failures. He can predict the actions of human beings better than any individual can predict in terms of their own life. Then we're told in verse 13, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Now, this is not Eden in Genesis 2 is never described this way. This is one reason why I don't believe Satan falls sometime after Genesis 2, falls sometime during the period between Genesis 2 or Genesis 3, is because the description here of Eden doesn't match the descriptions that we have in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. It is seems to be a, a place where there are a lot, we'll look at the stones in just a minute, but it seems to be uh, more. I've thought about this over the years when I first heard it. I, I wasn't sure about it, but in I think in one of his appendices in Arnold Fruchtenbaum's book um, uh, Footsteps of the Messiah, he has uh, an appendix on the five domains of Satan, something like that. And he goes through, in one of those, he's talking about Satan's fall. And I think Arnold does an excellent job, and I would agree with him probably, I don't know if I agree with him 100%, but I would, from what I remember, I agree with him about 99.9%. But he's the first person I read who uh, described this as a mineral-based creation, because that seems what's emphasized here. I don't know how dogmatic you could be on that, but it seems to be to fit that there's something different there. It's not you don't have trees and animals and birds. It seems very very different. And this this creature has a covering. So it is as if he has on. It may not be a breastplate, but he has on a, some covering that is characterized by these um, these various precious stones. And nine of these 12, these stones that are mentioned here, it has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, these nine stones comprise nine of the 12 stones that are on the breastplate of the high priest. So th- there's something interesting there in terms of that relationship. And it very well could be that this, this was not, if you were Jewish and you read this and you read those, li- that list of nine stones, you'd be thinking that's, that's, that's three fourths of the breast, the stones that are on the breastplate of the high priest. You immediately think of the image of the high priest. And so when we get down here and we look at what this creature did, he seems to have carried on some sort of priestly ministry. He's right next to the throne of God, and he is trading, as it were, that's the imagery that's used, the worship of the other angels to God. So he's the go-between. He's the mediator between the angels and God. And he, instead of being the go-between, he wants to be the one who actually gets their worship. So there's this imagery there of, of uh, this creature as having some sort of priestly role in the worship of God. It says, the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. So he's musical. He is the master of music. And as has been pointed out many times, when Satan fell, he fell into the choir loft. Because in many churches, the source of a lot of of um, problems in the church and gossip and whatever came out of choirs, because they they're there a lot, they rehearse a lot, and they they have a um, 
a key role in the in the congregation and that's why some churches got rid of choirs is because it just created a clique uh, within the congregation that was unhealthy for for the congregation so i always say that the that satan fell into the choir loft and bounced into the old testament department of most seminaries because most seminaries that have fallen into liberalism it started in the old testament department so this is his description Verse 14 says, you are the anointed cherub who covers. The word anointed there is the same word used for Jesus. It's Mashiach. So he's anointed to a specific role covering the throne of God. God says, I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. So like the other cherubs, he has a closest relationship to God and says, you walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. These are these stones on the mountain of God that appear to glow with fire. We see a picture of that. Remember when I read in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10 about the cloud that Ezekiel sees in the the chariot, and it, it seems to glow and the, has this fiery aspect to it, and that is that goes along with these uh, theophanies. So then in verse 15, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. So he's created perfect without sin, without unrighteousness, until iniquity is found in you. So there's a point when he's perfect, and then there's a shift. As a shift in his thinking. And all of a sudden, he's no longer thinking as a dependent, trusting creature focused on God. He becomes self-serving and self-focused. And then verse 16 says, By the abundance of your trading. What's he trading? See, Tyre was a commercial city where uh, the, their, their boats, their uh, merchant fleet would bring in goods, trade goods from all over the Mediterranean and it was a city where all of the uh, land routes, the caravan routes, would come down to Tyre. And so there was this uh, merchandising going on. It was a great center for trading goods, shipping goods, all of these things. And so that imagery is used that he is trading on something. What he's trading on has to do with the worship and the allegiance of the angels to God. As they come, that's the imagery here, as they come and they're bringing their worship to God, Satan is then involved as the as the um, priest in bringing that worship, leading that and bringing it to the throne of God. And now he wants it for himself. That's what happens. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within mental attitude sin. It's not external. It starts in his thinking. You became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God and I destroyed you, O covering cherub so he's the anointed cherub who covers in verse 14 he's the covering cherub in verse 16 out from the midst of the fiery stones there's nothing in genesis 2 that gives us the idea that eden was filled with either a mountain or uh, fiery stones and then verse 17 your heart was lifted up because of your beauty arrogance you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor you wanted to have an even greater glory I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. And that's a picture not of of human kings, but of the rulers, the principalities, the authorities, the powers among the angelic forces. said, you defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. That's another reference to this. Uh, term back here, the abundance of your trading in verse 16, the iniquities of your trading in verse 18. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst, it devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. That is a judgment terminology. On the earth, there is a judgment of this creature and his, and those who follow him on the earth. Now, when do you see something like that in Genesis chapter 2 or Genesis chapter 3? You just don't. 
Verse 19, all who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You've become a horror and shall be no more forever. Okay, so we're going to stop there. We've looked at Ezekiel. Now next time we'll come back and we'll go to Isaiah chapter 14 and look at the fall of Satan from Isaiah 14. And then we'll go to the question, well, when did this happen? Okay? Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight, to come to understand how or, how evil originated, that Satan is a genuine creature, originally perfect, gave himself over to a self-will and arrogance from which all evil and all horror and all destruction derives. And Father, that is what's worthy of eternal punishment. But Father, we can follow him in arrogance, in pride, and create our own hell, our own uh, destruction, our own horror. Father, the only solution is your grace, that we learn to walk with you, consistently trusting you, and dependence upon you, that we hope at times that we will not be ruled by our sin nature. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.